Paul Mason, thanks very much for joining us on Scotonomics. Uh, it's brilliant you've been able to spare the time with us. Thanks very much. It's great to be here. Well, well you've um, you've come onto the show um, a week after the Tory government um, released details about processing refugee claims in Rwanda and around 10 days after the Prime Minister and the Chancellor received fines for breaking the law. Do you think we're at the bottom of this very steep decline? Is it this week? Is this it? Or do we have further to fall? Well, you have to look at it in terms of the international situation. For me, obviously, you know, I've been looking at uh, YouGov polled, uh, I think, yesterday, so the 19th of April. Uh, 74% of people think Johnson's doing a bad job on inflation, and it goes on, on the economy, on uh, the energy. Um, so they're, they're facing really negative numbers um, on that because... What's happening is that there's a loss that popular in, in terms of the population. There's a widespread feeling that he is just a liar. He's incompetent. He's you know, lost the plot. Um, but that's not the, the, his biggest problem. His biggest problem is that we're facing an international crisis. Um, and, and he gets that. Johnson, I'm told by people on the inside, is one of the few people in government who's really concerned and engaged with the Ukraine crisis. But you know, in a crisis like this that could go from anything from maybe six to nine months of crippling high energy prices, causing mass poverty, all the way through to nuclear war, because it's possible that Putin could drop a tactical nuclear weapon on Ukraine. What you need in that situation is someone the public trusts and also someone who can construct unusual political alliances because, you know, if, if worst case scenario... Um, you, you, you wouldn't have a national government, but you would want to be bringing all sides in politics into crisis management uh, if things get worse in Ukraine. And the, the real problem, so outside the Beltway, everybody sees as a liar, doesn't trust him, or large numbers. Inside the Beltway, he can't really run Whitehall. He can't. So, so what you've got, everybody knows there's a chance he could go. So you've got rivals leading, you know, sort of mobilizing their own agendas. I think the Pretty Patel move on Rwanda was a Johnson move. So that's the Johnson Linton Crosby playbook to say, let's go to war with the legal profession, the courts, and all the liberal majority of the country and mobilize our own racist mass base. That's you know their gambit. But equally so, you have to re read Sunak's position. Sunak stopped the investment in new nuclear energy. Um, Sunak is a person saying we won't invest at all in um, green energy. Uh, anything we can't raise out of taxation, we're not going to borrow. At the same time, Sunak reportedly, two weeks ago in the Sunday Times, Sunak's saying he doesn't believe Putin will be beaten. We're going to have to make some kind of accommodation with Putin. It's not worth it to start spending loads of money on defence. Um, and so you've got a complete alternative vision of government sitting there alongside Johnson stymieing him and then what you've got not an alternative vision but a a, a a vacant space in the form of liz trust she's just an instagram account um no when you're trying to do really complicated things like you know sort of mobilize supply chains of weapons to ukraine handle the diplomatic outfall you know so handle india for example is off to india 
Um, you need a functioning unified government, and it it isn't. So that, that that's a long way of saying I don't think we're yet at the bottom. The bottom for Johnson is the moment he goes, and I think that will be a new crisis for the Tory party because it, it has competing visions of how it wants to handle these huge strategic problems of deglobalization, of COVID, post-COVID economy, of the energy crisis and Ukraine. Um, so I, I think, you know, that in, in, in internet terms, in, in social media terms, a single emoji uh, sums up the situation and that is popcorn. You know, we just have to stand back and watch as they disintegrate. I, I thought it was more the, the head exploding that's the one I would have gone for. I mean, yeah, maybe. We'll get back to those kind of alternatives and if, actually, if, and if actually any of them will solve the huge problems that we've got. But you mentioned this kind of right-wing playbook. In your book, um, How to Stop Fascism, you talk about a second era of fascism and 2021 being a pivotal year. Is 2022 a really pivotal year as well? Well, I finished my book, uh, How to Stop Fascism, just after the January 6th uprising uh, outside the US Capitol. Uh, in fact, I, the reason I finished it then is because it was written and I said to my publishers, Trump will do something between the election and the inauguration. Uh, I mean, I said that to them sort of almost two years before it happened. And we were waiting so that I could write the last bit. And the last bit was, yeah, indeed, the, the, the insurrection. So, however, what I didn't anticipate is what we're now facing, which is a you know, uh, you know the Russian army facing accusations of genocide for its actions in the occupation north of Kiev. We've we've got a, we've got clearly genocidal or ethno-nationalist uh, rationale being pumped out by the Kremlin and accepted by large sections of the Russian oligarchic elite and its spokespeople, and and you'd have to say acted upon by individual soldiers. Now in the book. The, the proposal in the book is, is simply this. It's not like a sort of bestiary of who are the left wing, uh, sorry, who are the right wing groups uh, here, there and everywhere across the globe. There are some case studies that I use from the year 2020 just to show how, how acute uh, the, and how, how important the actions of far right minorities are becoming to politics. Um, but the book is a thesis about fascism and its basic thesis in one sentence is that what we thought were separate phenomena, authoritarian conservatism, Johnson, mm. Patel, uh, right wing populism, Farage, you know, Brexit Party and fascism. So the EDL or Britain first, they are in, in British terms, these phenomena are converging around a single thought architecture. And the thought architecture it, at its center is the idea of the great replacement, that immigration is a form of, of genocide against white people, justifying a violent, uh, cataclysmically violent response to it. Now, what we, I didn't expect to see, uh, and maybe I should have expected, to see this begin to happen at the level of the Russian state in the way it has. And I think the reason uh, I didn't expect it is because what in the book I'm focusing on movements. The, the people making the, the change are the movements online and from below. So if you look at the United States, 
You've got the mass radicalization of people around QAnon. You've got these Oath Keeper militia, uh, pro boys driven by violent misogyny. They were the people who changed consciousness. Trump radicalized towards them. He still think I think Trump still was just trying to use them as a mass base for a constitutional coup on the sixth of January. Um, I wasn't looking for a radicalization in office by Putin without the intervention of a lot of street level movements would simply bring him from his existing sort of authoritarian position to a totalitarian position based on an ethno-nationalist conquest of of Ukraine. He, He wants to cancel the concept of being Ukrainian, let alone the language, let alone the country's borders. So, um, in the last, well, what would it be, four, five, six years, I've made what I thought were pretty bold predictions. Number one, Trump, in the book Clear Bright Future, Trump signals the end of the international order. I think that proved right. Um, in uh, to, The book came out in August 2021, How to Stop Fascism, that we're seeing the convergence of, of the right, the far right, and the populist right around a single thought architecture. Um, I was right again. And if I now think of the most cataclysmic prediction I can think of, it is that, is that, well, you know, we have to be worried about, and there's something I write about in the book, about the nihilism inherent in all modern fascism. When when you hear uh, Putin's uh, Kremlin ideologists, right at the beginning of the war, they, one guy stood up, I've forgotten his name now, he stands up and he says, what is the point of the world if Russia can't be in it? Hmm. That's a, a thought you hear in the Russian fascist ideologist Alexander Dugin, who I write about in the book. It's a thought you hear in historic fascism. Goebbels said in 1945, when they knew they were going to lose, if we lose, we'll, I think the words were, we, it's like we'll slam the door of history so hard the building will fall down. Um they, there is a, there's not just a, in all genocidal mindsets, there is also a suicidal mindset. This is what Hannah Arendt points out. She says, the people who perpetrated the Holocaust not only could not see their victims as human, they did not regard themselves as human. They did not care whether they lived, and many of them did indeed um, to commit suicide when captured. She says, they don't really even care whether they ever existed at all. So, you know, what, what, one of the points of the book is to get people to start thinking openly and talking openly about this is the enemy we're dealing with. It's not Nigel Farage anymore. It's not just a sort of, you know, some casino boss, you know, turned, you know, mafiosi who, who accidentally wins the presidency. We're dealing with a fully thought through new kind of fascism. And that's incredibly difficult to position yourself against because it's so deeply rooted in a kind of philosophy. Um, where does this dislike of modernity come from that seems to, you know, you painted a picture there from kind of conservatism right across to the far right and saying that they're kind of connected by this idea of a, of white genocide. But there's also this kind of dislike of modernity and kind of looking back to pull from the past. And we kind of joke about it when we see Brexit was all about you know, in White Cliffs of Dover and the the Blitz spirit, but that's really powerful across that whole far right movement, isn't it? Well, you know, fascist politics in the end is nature politics. It counterposes to to history the idea of of an eternal natural world, and 
you know, I suppose you could say, you know, the world for a, 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 an English peasant in the year 1500 wasn't too um, different to, to the world for a sort of English, you know, farmer or a Bre Bretonic farmer uh, in, in pre-Roman times. I mean, yeah, you know, some things have been invented like windmills, but basically they, you lived on the land, you lived locally, you married somebody living within three miles of you, um, you know, um, you were conquered, the conquerors went away. Suddenly, modernity brings a kind of a kind of 45 degree angle takeoff of, of GDP per person. And and as uh, Francis Bacon says, you know, the the compass gunpowder and the printed world changed the face of the of the world. The, the compass gunpowder and the printed word have changed the face of the world forever. So if you're a fascist and you want to return to a natural state in which men you know, are the masters of women, that women are subservient, that um, certain that there is a racial hierarchy with white people at the top of it. That the the latest point of history you want to be is around about 1650. You know, when the when the slave trade takes off, um, the whole of modernity after that is a waste is a wasted period for them. And again, for the key ideologists, Dugin, uh, you know, uh, who remains one of the ideologists that Putin reads and thinks about. Dugan says, if we could reverse Russia out of communism into capitalism, why can't we reverse it back to feudalism? And indeed, he says in one, one passage, back to a hunter-gatherer existence. No, these are not just metaphors that they're using. They really mean that the whole of modernity has been a mistake. The French New Right, the Brazilian Far Right, the Russian Far Right. Um, and, and it's because, for me, modernity contains within itself the seed of human freedom. Now, if you're a liberal, you be believe that freedom comes from rising technological um, control over the world, of rising GDP per person, of increased rights for women, for gay people, uh, equality for um, ethnic minorities. If you're a socialist, as I am, I think there's an extra bit, which is eventually the contradictions um, embodied in a capitalist society that can develop technology and can develop human control over the world really massively but it can't bring social justice and um, i think that this could lead us to a point where we take control of the whole society you know we remove the capitalist class we 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 come up with a post-capitalist world uh, type of economy um, based on commons based on common ownership um free stuff um to a fascist all that looks like a really dangerous thing human freedom is actually what might you know my sort of shorthand definition of fascism, although I hate definitions, the shorthand definition is it's, it's the fear of freedom triggered by a glimpse of freedom. And, and modernity brings you lesbian and gay rights. Modernity brings you the ability of people who think they've been born in the wrong gender to change that gender legally. Um, it brings you black people, not just becoming lawyers in America or famous uh, football stars, but saying... The police don't have the right to kill us when they stop us for a traffic ticket. That's freedom. And they fear it. Um, in the book, I, I'm very inspired in the book by a controversial and conflicted historian, Ernst Nolter, who, despite becoming later, and in fact, an, I would argue, an apologist for Nazism, he was the first non-Marxist historian to, to really grasp that what fascism is, is a negation of the human tendency to free ourselves um 
And so, you know, the you, you said about the, the fascism as a philosophical movement before. I absolutely agree. And what, one of the reasons I've written the book is I'm trying to drag a bunch of really well-meaning and in fact heroic left anti-fascists away from theories that don't make any sense. You know, inherited theories from the Communist International in 1935 or stuff they've learned from 1960s philosophers that are really pointless. Um, the, the theory of fascism has to be based on what we see and the class and the psychological uh, forces that are recreating it. We've got to understand uh, what's recreating it. I'm I'm absolutely fascinated by what you're saying. I mean, this this is uh, it, it, the the it goes to also conservatism uh, as well, which you would describe as um, perhaps at the more milder end of the scale. But you know that fear of new, uh, the fear of new knowledge. Um, do you think that then perhaps um, the antidote to that to a certain extent is is the um, the spreading of new knowledge? Do you think that the, the internet then is fearsome to people that are afraid of new knowledge? Do you think there's also a fear in people, you know, I'm thinking about the, the, the people who are marching on uh, Capitol Hill, um, the, this fear of, I don't understand what's going on. Mm. And I feel alienated. I think that there's a lot in what you say. Let me let me take it bit by bit. Let's come back to conservatism in a minute. But just want to talk about um, about the internet. When I was covering the emergence of network protest in, in in 2011, you know, the Occupy movement, the Arab Spring. One of the questions we asked is, um, will the right, will the authorities, the authoritarians, be able to come up with something that neutralizes this? And they had three goals that, because. The internet was spontaneously networked. It allowed network protest. It allowed people to flow like water as late as, as, late as 2017 in the Hong Kong protests around authoritarian rule. The, the first thing they try and do is shut down the internet. That doesn't work. You know, people simply spray paint IP addresses for VPNs onto, the, onto concrete walls. Um, the next thing that happened is that you, you get spontaneous separate bubbles. So... So that's fine for the Israelis. You know, the Israelis in the 2014 Gaza war, which I uh, covered, you could see in the Israeli uh, blogosphere and, and in Twitter, they were getting almost no, no um, information from any source shared by the Palestinian blogosphere. Only the liberal newspaper, Hayaretz, um, actually crossed over between the two. I certainly didn't. I was slap bang in the middle of the Palestinian cloud. So the bubbles are fine, but they don't win far right is a minority, you know, the sort of um, Israel's a special case, but this bubble formation was a thing that the right have been doing a lot. A lot. The, bubbles don't win you elections, the separate bubble tactic. And so we should have known what they would do because information theory 101 tells you that the best way to bring down a, 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 an effective information transit mechanism is to fill it with noise. Mm -hmm. This is what the system. Yeah, it, information theory began as a way of denoisifying tele telephonic uh, networks. Um, and if you use the opposite principle, the way to shut down a telephone network is not to cut the wires; is to fill it with meaningless information. And the, the same applies to the internet. So, what we saw, and Putin was a big player. 
the American far right were big players. People like Recep Tayyip Erdogan have been big players. Um, is that, and, and I'd have to say Rupert Murdoch has been a big player via Fox News. You fill the internet with m stuff that's so dodgy, people stop. And it doesn't matter whether it's social media, blogs, Fox News. It doesn't matter what the way is. The fact is they interact with each other. And in the end, people say, I don't know what to believe anymore. I don't know whether this medium is any good. Then, if you, in addition, fill it with insult so that it becomes, you know, to say one thing. I say, I see it myself in my everyday life. Um, at the moment, from mainly from ultra-left pro-Putin uh, trolls, you say something about Starmer. He, he, you know, he... He made a good intervention on Johnson. You know, he stood up for, for just people's ordinary decency. All you get is then this avalanche of personal uh, hostility to, you know, anger at me for saying that, anger at Starmer for something he's done, you know, that they don't like. That it, And before you know it, people, so I don't care, but my relatives who follow me on Twitter, they go, how, you know, people think you're a maniac. People think you're a monster. You know, you're a traitor and they're calling you this all the time. And I'm saying to them, Yes, that's the purpose of this. That's what trolling is. It's, it's to make the internet unin uninhabitable for progressive people. So they finally worked out what to do. So it's not, I don't think, you know, we've got the most uh, educated generation in human history. Um, so I, I don't think you can cut them off from information. I mean, the American writer trying with them, banning children's books about, you know, about slavery and the rest of it. But they, people are going to find out the information. What you've got to do is remove the network as a as a as an effective tool for struggle, and then you've got to deaden the power of new information by pumping it with so much untruth or half truth that nobody really cares. And so I don't think we on the progressive side of politics have yet understood how to deal with that. Um, there is a Thankfully, the Ukraine war gives us one tool, and, and the Germans have already perfected it, which is no democratic state should be tolerating incitement to violence. Um, and I think that, you know, I'm a big backer of state intervention to to deaden um, the use of information networks as incitement tools. You've got to leave them fairly free for ideas, but incitement is not an idea that a democracy should, incitement to violence or, say, to genocide, is not an idea that any democracy should tolerate in any in any internet form. I'm, I'm in favour of actually chasing it right down into its into its hiding places, which are the the voice networks, the Discord channels. You know, you would need a, an information sort of counter movement, a kind of to 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 track them right down. But that's what a lot of Antifa groups actually do. They 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 hack the Discord channels and they identify the genocidal maniacs who are polluting them yeah, but unfortunately that's a, an unregulated um, citizen level rather than a, a state level my, my final question on on the media paul is do, do you think in a sense that social media has allowed the um, mainstream media to get a little bit of a free pass over the last 10 years i'm thinking mainly around the uk and for example karen's standing for election at the moment for the SNP and you wouldn't be surprised to read that there's some stories about Karen in the local press um, which is a conservative porting press but instantly SNP candidates other candidates from the from the left are up against a huge barrier which is the mainstream media 
um, especially yeah. the print media in the UK? The tragedy is that the print media is dying and it's only really having re resonance among a certain elderly demographic. That's, that's the first problem. The tragedy is that while there are all quite well-supported um, globally English-language uh, non-neoliberal media outlets, the tragedy is so many of them are actually now aligned and proxy with Putin. Um, I'm not just thinking of Russia today or, or Sputnik. The unfortunate thing is, is though it's not overtly aligned with Putin. If you think about something like grey zone, um, you know, where where they live in that space of you know of questioning truth and you know sort of bolstering the the narrative that comes out of the Kremlin constantly. You know, they're they're more angry at Joe Biden than they are at Vladimir Putin. The the pro Putin left have managed to create American scale um, alt, alt media. The problem in Britain is that we haven't at all. And and I, I, I begin to think that one of the reasons is that the forces of, um, this is one of the central arguments of the book, the forces that could do it come from the centre and the left. You look at one of the media projects I work with, Byline Times, I sometimes write in their print edition, I sometimes write occasionally for their online thing. Now, it's a self-sustaining uh sort of you know it's got i can't remember how many uh, print subscribers it's got um it's so it's self-sustaining it pay, people they pay people decent i'd say probably above um above or at or above average journalistic wages to the people who work for them um but what it's been created by is essentially a bunch of centrist uh remainers uh peter jukes the, the main guy you know is, is is came from that you know remain uh second referendum type movement. And then most of the people who work for them are sort of left, but of the kind of anti-tanky left. Um, that's that's a good example, but it needs scale. Um, and and it's very you know limited to a sort of certain demographic. You've got another example, Navarra Media. Navarra Media has grown itself to have a very good footprint print among a certain type of young al you know, alternative, you know, left-wing person. But what it can't do, and it doesn't even want to do, same as Byline Times, they can't reach out to the masses. Um, whereas the whole point of Fox News, the whole point of Grey Zone, the whole point of George Galloway's um, mother of all talk shows on RT is to, it's populist, it speaks to the masses. You know, if something's happening, um, you know, um, I was just re-watching, you know, George Galloway, you know, so if, when Emma Raducanu won, won uh, Wimbledon, George Galloway was on about how great is this? It's great. You know, um, whereas something like Navarro would be talking about, you know, what are the racial politics of Emma Raducanu? It's kind of that we haven't got a transmitter. We haven't got, and I'm sure that's the same in, in Scotland. You've, your added problem in Scotland is, of course, the progressive forces, Scottish Greens, SNP, Labour are heavily divided or at least the Labour half of it is. So any idea, I should imagine any idea that Scott Lab would be having some kind of a joint uh, left, you know, authoritative media outlet. Well, look at the nation. You know, the nation is uh, kind of defies my my premise in a way because I think it's quite a successful print uh, uh, print outlet. Is that the national, the, the Scottish uh, newspaper? Sorry, the, 
the, the, the national, national. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the, so look at the national uh it, you know it defies my premise in a little bit because i think it is quite successful but it's it's its premise is very clearly nationalist so yeah you, you've got your own problems there but it's a general uk problem the the unions which have got load of money you know unfortunately are run by people who are either not interested in politics now i mean that was the point of of uh, the unite general election or they see labor as their as their um as their kind of transmitter into the political world it's very interesting to me that labor doesn't really have uh, any kind of allied newspaper any kind of outlet or mouthpiece any kind of regular communication with its own members and supporters um it just got administrative emails you know you're more likely to read don't do something than you are to read uh hey how great is it that we've just done this so yeah we've got a big communicative issue here on the left in britain um, what do you think about the economic factors that have caused the rise in the far right across the globe? In the book, I say, and I really believe this, that it's not primarily economic hardship that is, that is driving the far right. It's the breakdown of an economic model, neoliberalism. Now, neoliberalism, I, to my mind, broke down in 2008. Its, it's mainsprings blew apart. Um, there's no spontaneous... Uh, there's no spontaneous sort of mode of accumulation, dynamo of production anymore. It's all kept alive by quantitative easing and debt. I was looking at the figures the other day. I think from memory, something like global debt, household, corporate and uh, state are on the eve of the Lehman Brothers crisis was something like out of $154 trillion. Uh, and now it's something like 256 trillion. And I remember in 2008, you know, economists like Richard Koo from Namura coming on Newsnight and saying, we'll face it, we're going to face 10 years where I'm going to pay down this debt and countries are going to have to pay down their debt. And if you remember, you know, Alistair Darling, we're going to pay down the debt and George Osborne, pay down. we haven't paid a penny off any debts. All we've done is risen, is, is printed money and now, since COVID, used the printed money to buy the debt. Um, that's what's keeping capitalism alive. But you can keep a, a zombie economic system alive on life support like that. You cannot keep the ideology alive because the human brain, brain demands coherence. It demands logical uh, coherence. And until about 2015, you know, People in power went carried on trying to say no. It's just it's just it's not dead. It's just resting. You know it will come back to life. The, the neoliberal system that was the essence of the Cameron uh, Clegg government. It was the essence of what the IMF, World Bank, and European Commission were trying to do with the Greek crisis. After that, you get a split inside the ruling class of the world, and and factions emerge almost everywhere that say no. It's not going to come back. We need a new model. And the new model is a is it what I call neoliberal nationalism or Thatcherism in one country. Um, for those who remember the Soviet Union, that is, we'll carry on doubling down on on cutting wages, on privatizing stuff. But from now on, our aim is simply to keep things going at a national level. We're not going to keep the structures of globalization going. Who does that characterize? Trump, Johnson, Marine Le Pen. Uh, the Vox PP alliance in Spain, the um, the right wing in in Italy uh, around Berlusconi, the Polish government, Hungarian government, uh, Bolsonaro, um, Recep Tayyip Erdogan. Uh, I could go on. Actually, Modi uh, is another. 
the Chinese are out of the game in that sense. They don't, they don't have a democracy at all. But if you think about how powerful now that movement is to break up the world system in order to keep the essence of, of neoliberalism going, um, at that point, what was the problem? At least with Keynesianism, you know, the, the, I grew up in the Keynesian era. You know, I was taught, you know, my, my, my dental care would always be free. My, the milk I drank at school was always be free. Um, rents on council houses were so small that nobody really cared if you didn't pay it. Um, so, however, nobody ever said to me, economics explains the whole world, Paul. You know, the world around you, the economic world around you is the key to the whole world. No, they said, here's the economy and we run it in a certain way. And then there are choices in politics about liberalism, socialism, conservatism, nationalism. Uh, but neoliberalism was a, a universal faith. It explained everything. The market was in charge of your life. And the, the easiest thing to do was to let it, let it, you know, let it flow. Any idea that you would push back against economic forces would cause you only pain, as those who those found out who did, you know, like the miners, like the print workers, like the poll tax, the anti-poll tax struggle. So two generations have grown up under neoliberalism, under the idea that it's the end of history, it's the best system possible, it explains everything. There is no intellectual outside world uh, with any coherence. There is only, you can have internal tactical disagreements within neoliberalism, but you can't have a critique of neoliberalism. And then suddenly, just as with the Soviet Union, there's a great phrase, a book title, um, about the end of the Soviet Union. Uh, once it was forever, then it was no more. And that's what happened to neoliberal ideology. Once it was forever, and then it was no more. And what's then happened is that because conservatism and liberalism are so tied to neoliberalism, if you went, you know, this is why you've got Rishi, Rishi Sunak, even though saying, no, you can't spend on energy, you can't spend on the war, on, on defence, you can't spend on um, de decarbonising, you, you don't do furlough. I mean, he's resistant to furlough at the start um, because neoliberalism is in their heads. So in whose head didn't neoliberalism reside? Well, an absolutely tiny and ineffectual far left and the far right. And the far right have come up with an offer, a new explanation of the world. Will Davis from Goldsmiths University um, calls the crisis of neoliberalism. Well, he calls neoliberalism the disenchantment of politics by, econ by economics. Politics becomes economics. What we're saying is literally the re-enchantment of, of politics. So, and I mean by that, the introduction of irrational, emotional, um, na nation, faith, and race-based politics. And the spine of it is what I describe in the book, Great replacement theory, anti-feminism, anti-liberalism, the, the, the theory that cultural Marxism is a plot to destabilize the West, the meta-politics, which tells you don't do stuff, just win the argument out there through through uh, the network and wait for, for, for bullet point number five, which is the collapse of the world order into a global ethno-civil war. That is the through, through spine of modern fascism. And the real danger we face is because the economy doesn't cohere, because the explanation for, for how the economy should work no longer makes sense, because official politics has no answers. So look at Macron flailing around with, for answers. That far-right argument, it's all about race, it's all about nation, it's all about um, 
gender, i.e. Anti-gen- the anti-gender politics, um, is very powerful. And in our country, even in our country, you know, the, the, the current rate at which teenage boys are being put on trial and convicted for terrorism offences, for sharing essentially manuals for far-right terrorism, is quite staggering. I think it's about a fifth of all terror prisoners now uh, are far-right, and they mainly come from that demographic. Most of them haven't done anything, in anything violent. All they've done is pass around incitement to terrorism, uh, which is bad, and they should be in jail for it. But it, it shows you how 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 attractive and how how resonant this new set of ideas has become. So, so to finish the answer, it's not that these boys sitting in their bedrooms have you know can't put a fish finger on the table in many cases. It's not that they they've got no future. Uh, in economically, as it was for the people in the storm up Tai Long in 1933. It's the point that the world doesn't make sense to them anymore and they need a coherent worldview. And the modern far right is providing that worldview. So, I mean, I would say, unfortunately, the Labour Party also swallowed the neoliberal snake oil. Um, and uh, would you say that that perhaps uh, has to do with the demise of the Scottish Labour Party? <laughs> well, I would say in return, if you look at the white paper, the 2014 white paper, that was essentially neoliberalism as well. Um, and I think that, you know, the, 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 I don't think, for example, Nicola Sturgeon and the SNP have fully broken from neoliberalism. I think I think they have a, a liberal critique of it. But I, I, fair enough. Bear in mind that the Scottish government are just like an English council. We're a currency yeah. user. We're not a currency creator. So... No. You don't really have a choice as a currency user that you have as a currency creator like the UK government is. You know, it can do fiscal policy and the Scottish government can't do fiscal policy. But but yeah, I I accept that. And and that's not that's not the substance of what I'm saying. I was thinking more about the uh, the growth commission accepting, you know, 10 years of, of austerity for in return for I think that's off the agenda anyway now although energy prices are back up so some of the maths of the growth commission might turn out to be right we don't know but let me let me come to Scottish Labour no I think the basic problem with Scottish Labour is it didn't understand the the cultural cultural nationalism it didn't understand the desire for for national independence um there and 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 the, the roots of that are twofold one you've got the left the, the, you know, the kind of Richard Leonard left and the kind of remnants of the old, actually going back to Gordon Brown, you know, the kind of the sort of Scottish planning and all that. It, it, the idea was that they, the, the left had a critique, you know, which said, well, we don't want independence because then we've got a permanent Tory government in, 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 in the remainder of the UK. And in any case, you know, they would generally say, you know, nationalism divides the working class. I don't, I don't agree with that. Um, then you've got the right, who are basically unionists, who, who you know, who, who's often quite allied to the, to the sort of defence industrial, you know, sort of um, defence industrial sort of complex in Scotland, uh, the British defence industrial complex, and people who, who are just, you know, culturally dead set against nationalism. Uh, to be slightly controversial, I have over over I have sort of observed a little bit of a sectarian divide going on in that argument as well. Um, 
but you can't substantiate it. It's just my feeling about who who turns up for what argument. Now, um, I think Scottish Labour needs to accept that it, I don't think it, it, given it's you know given the so many so much of the Scottish working class has left Labour and gone to the SNP, the urban working class, so much of them, then the self-selected remnants are not going to be able to come up with the position I would want, which would be basically to support for such a radical form of federation that it didn't matter whether it was... It, the, the difference between the early form of Nicola Sturgeon's proposed independence and the, the form of federation would be quite quite close. They're not going to be able to come up with that. And until they do, and until they can relate to Scottish cultural nationalism, I don't know what they're going to do. Um, I, I hope, because I'm a member of the party, that they win some seats in the, you know, in the uh, council election. And I hope that the that when it comes to a government, this is the more important thing, that if the sequence goes like this, so sequence goes like this, early 2023 snap general election, October 2023 referendum, I hope that Labour's strategists nationally in Westminster can come up with an argument that says, give us supply and confidence. You can have your referendum. We will campaign against you for, on full independence. I think their tactic might be to propose uh, a three-question referendum. Uh, I don't know whether that they will, but... At the end of the day, as long as we're all in the same state, you know, the British United Kingdom, all the progressive parties have an interest in creating a non-Tory government in that state. And then we've just got to get to the point of what what's the quid pro quo? What does the SNP want most? And if it wants an, an, an independence referendum, um, I'd be in favour of saying, yes, fine, you know, that Scotland has the right to self-determination and the government of Scotland, you know, Wants the wants to have a referendum on the right to self determination. Go ahead. Well, I think you've explained all the issues with Scottish Labour there, and I just can't see a solution that's more powerful than Scottish Labour supporting Scottish independence, and also being boosted by the left and the rest of the United Kingdom saying that um, the the problems with the British state are so endemic. They're so endemic that something something substantial has to happen to to change the shit the balance of power, and that is independence. And where we can look at the constitution and we can look at all the institutions, it seems like there's a solution there that's good for Scottish Labour because they're likely to possibly be involved in power in Scotland, and for the left and the rest of the United Kingdom who yeah. they're able to actually influence the changes. So that seems like a solution, but why is that not really on? the radar of the, the Labour Party? Because the Labour Party is shrunken in Scotland and where it, in its heartland, which is um, urban England um, and, and Wales, I mean, it, Welsh Labour is incredibly hegemonic at the moment, especially in alliance with Plaid. Um, they've created this alliance with Plaid. They're, they've now got a permanent government. They can do much more strategic things and they're starting to do them. You know, looking at things like second homes, the way, you know, the, the whole... So Welsh Labour, I think, you know, have got their own journey, and it's not—it's not, it's not going to be towards independence until there's a Scottish, until there is, until there is Scottish independence, and we don't know whether that will happen. I think with English Labour, it's—they it, gain nothing. Uh, while you say the, the British state is so dysfunctional, and it is, that only breaking it geographically will will sort it out. For us, the 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 proletariat and the salariat of the big cities, which is where Labour's main support is 
and also for those remaining industrial areas in the north of uh, Midlands of England. Um, Scotland going independent doesn't solve anything about the British state. We'll just be left with it, but also left with a, a much higher hill to climb in terms of getting a left government because without the SNP and without Scottish Labour and without the Scottish Greens. Um, so it's not on the radar because it doesn't solve any of their problems. If the Scottish left wants to put it on their radar, I think that would be something that I think that hasn't happened. You know, we haven't had um, Scottish uh, politicians address the, the progressive half of Britain really since um, the 2019 second referendum campaign. What annoys me is that we all have to be involved in politics much more. Now, mm. I have got progressive friends in England, and my feeling is that they're just not busy enough, Paul. They need to be busier. And when you were in power in 1997, when Blair got into power, she should have changed the electoral system there and yep. then. It is a disgrace. The first-past-the-post system is a disgrace. Now, yeah. you can tell I'm angry. I'm angry because I'm 55 and I've lived with Thatcherism, yeah. you know, my whole life and what it's brought to Scotland. And it was particularly um, bad for Scottish people. The poll tax arrived a year later in London and then it, it Thatcher was out, you know, but we yeah. had to poll it for a year. So, you know, there's, um, you, you know, I get annoyed with English progressives you know, saying, uh, you know, we're, we're sorry, we're going to lose the progressives in Scotland. We've waited a long time, <laughs> you know, and it's, it's not happened. Look, look if, uh, you know, I'm one of the most sympathetic people on the on the English left to Scottish independence. I still think what one of the reasons for it uh, is, is that what you get when you get an, it's the same in Catalonia, what you get when you get a ind newly independent state is you get a chance to, to do a thorough clean of the state machine. Um, and you find out what is real and what is not real and things you didn't know about and, and where where power really lies. For example, you know, the, now this is not the worst thing about the British state, but if you think about what the, how does the monarchy run Britain? Good question. Yeah. How does it, what does the monarchy actually do? Well, it obviously talks, you watch the crown, it talks to the prime minister and occasionally sort of, moves an eyebrow, oh, I'm not sure about this, and, and, and things happen, and it influences. But how many people know about Lord Lieutenants? Lord Lieutenants in every county, appointed by the government, but basically answerable to the Queen. Um, I know that the monarchy used those Lord Lieutenants as almost like a sort of agency. Uh, they, are, they are a nerve system, they, they are an information gathering system, and they are an influence system. Now, I would say, you know, when Scotland comes to write the new, or when the SNP proposes the next white paper, you, I would be looking for a big part of how we're going to reform the state. Are we going to have a foreign secret service and a domestic secret service? What are we going to do? Do we want our own GCHQ? There's the, there's the defence side. There's a big opportunity now with Finland and and, and uh, Sweden joining NATO for Scotland actually to say, well, we want to be in NATO, but like Finland, with no nuclear weapons. So you could do a lot there. Um, the problem remains for us, we can't. We, if Scotland becomes independent, we've got a whole set of different problems. And it's just a, a product of the fact that English and Scottish politics have diverged. I'm not, I'm not saying, you know, by the way, I would say, I, I still think the reason Labour lost the Red Wall is, is, is anti-immigration. It's just simply that the people just, don't like immigration and there's nothing that 
uh, we can. I went to my own hometown to campaign Lee in Lancashire. Uh, um, it wasn't a pleasant experience. Um, I was hearing genocidal thought expressed to me, you know, by people probably I'd grown up around. Um, I think we can win them back to vote Labour on the on the basic issues of of yeah, you know of of economics and you know cost of living and the incompetence of the government. Uh, whether whether probably the maximum you can do to to the as I say this in the book to the ultra right wing thought is to dead it down a bit to to reduce it back to I don't like the you know the classic I don't like kebab shops type racism rather than I'm going to kill them all type racism. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, I think we, we could. To me, I'm, I, I want to look positively, and for the Scottish audience, look positively at the next 12 to 18 months. I think Johnson is going to go for an early general election. I think he wants to get it out of the way before the referendum. That means, therefore, the Scottish government should stick to its plan and try and give us a date for when it thinks it's going to have that referendum. Then we'll be certain that's going to happen. Um, Gordon Brown needs to come out with his constitutional, um, you know, think tank thing, whatever that's going to be. Well, I don't know how much notice people are going to take of it. And then Keir Starman needs to start talking to Nicola Sturgeon about what a government would look like of the United Kingdom that facilitated a referendum. Uh, and I think that we just all need to be honest about that. Um, the prize is not just Scottish independence for you and your audience. It is for us constitutional change, because there's no way the English and Welsh are going to, like, remember, it's going to be the English and Welsh, because I think we haven't talked about it. United Ireland's now on the agenda. Economically, United Ireland is happening. Um, it's going to be traumatic politically. But the English and Welsh live in the, in the same state. You're going to have to have, I would say, regions created throughout England that are as powerful as the Welsh government. And then you're in business. Then you're in business for electoral reform. You're in business for asking what are the role of Lord Lieutenants in England and all the rest of it? Exactly, Paul. But at the start of this conversation, you said that Labour wouldn't back Scottish independence because well, I can't. I, I can't make them do it. No, I know. And, but, but, but as someone who's really powerful on the progressive left, you know, if we had more people on the left saying, look, the only way you know, this to, to bring this house of cards down is for, it's not a geographical independence, it's a complete shifting of all of the institutions and all of the resources and, and everything around the United Kingdom. So I know I'm not going to persuade you today, I'm not going to persuade the progressive left today, but it seems like there's a very strong narrative there that change will only happen if something significant changes. And if there's another alternative to Scottish independence, then sure, but I can't see anything being in, having the potential to make such an impact as Scottish independent well look if i lived in scotland and was a scottish national person you know, i scottish identity and could vote I, i'm certain i would vote yes in a referendum um but i don't and i'm stuck with the problem of being an english socialist um living in london uh, and, and facing a perpetual tory government so i think the party that i am a member of the best thing it can probably the maximum it's going to be able to offer is is a is a federation um and i think it should offer federations and Federation as the first gambit, uh, i.e. everything except uh, foreign defence and, and unfortunately uh, monetary, unless you're prepared to go um, for a Scottish currency. Uh, offer of that, a no-fault separation if the referendum goes yes. But then if it goes no, and you have to bear the risk that it could go no, given that the Ukraine is, you know, people are worried about, about 
about uh, security. If it goes no, then we've got a fallback, which is federation. So, you know, how how much different is for your generation, how much, how, how worse would federation be given that maybe in 20 years time, that 16 year old generation that voted for the first time in 2014 might indeed want that as a way towards full fiscal, monetary and sovereign independence. I don't, I, you know. Well, England has to vote for that first before that's yeah, going to happen. Absolutely. You, need, you need you need the, the the sixty five million people that live there to do that, right? Yeah. So that has to happen. Unfortunately, England's voting for Tories, and yeah. has for most of my life. Unfortunately, um, that's my that's my life experience. Yeah. I mean, the the reason that me and uh, William are interested in Scottish independence primarily is subsidiarity. We want to see power closer to the yeah. people who vote for it. Now, if you were to start the UK as a brand new entity, say, because I don't call the UK a country. Scotland's a country, England's a country, Wales is a country. So we're a union of countries. If you're going to start this union, would you put the capital at the bottom end, <laughs> as far away from everywhere else as possible? Then would you build all the infrastructure in that city so that then all the embassies want to be there, all the businesses want to be there, then that's the really rich area of the country. Then all of the people that are coming across from other parts of the country, they want to be there as well. So then everyone starts freaking out down there because, oh my God, everyone wants to live here. Meanwhile, in Scotland, we need immigrants yeah. because we there's don't have- There's nobody there's nobody there. And land reform needs to happen here as well and all kinds of things. But, you know, if you were going to start the UK from scratch, you couldn't possibly have done it in a worse way. And it's well known that this is a very unequal entity. And again, Absolutely. I'm going to use the word entity. So subsidiarity is really important to me and to William as well. Now, not only that, during Thatcher's time as well, our town councils were abolished and we now have these huge councils. So our democracy, as uh, it's been further uh, diminutized as well. Yeah. So currently, where I live in North Aberdeen, we have one councillor for four and a half thousand people. Where I lived in Leith in Edinburgh before I moved back to Aberdeen, we had one councillor for eight and a half thousand people. Now in England, that's one councillor for two and a half thousand people. But if I was in Norway, it would be one councillor for 700 people. Wow. This is how diminutized our democracy is people don't it is no wonder that people are angry because there's no advocacy for them and that's been built into the uk system and i'm sorry but in 1997 i was living in london when when um, blair got in and it was a hopeful time you know after all that time with conservatism and then you know it just all seemed to fall apart everything all of our hopes and dreams you know, and I moved to the Netherlands, came back, and and then we had a devolution, and things started to improve in Scotland because finally, in Scotland, we had a big bit of civil architecture. You know, a yeah. big civil service. So, so so now I'm campaigning amongst young people who are working for MSPs, working for MPs. These jobs exist now, whereas when I was a child, they weren't on offer. These jobs they just didn't exist in Scotland. So, you know, it's it, 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 things have changed massively. And, you know, subsidiarity is really important. I want to see 
for example, community councils more empowered. Now, going back to Labour, we have a, a Labour candidate here um, in South Aberdeenshire, near Stonehaven, close to me, and she's gone independent because she is an independent supporter. So she's left the Labour Party. She's well known enough in our local community. She's ahead of COSLA. So, you know, she'll probably get those votes. So she's left the Labour Party because they will just not stand up for independence. I think that I think that independence would be a game changer for progressives in England. I do. And not only that, it would be a game changer for environmental policy. You know, we can we can do environmental policy better once we're independent and we can do progressive policy when we're better when we're independent. And when people see what the possibilities are in England, I think they will take the reins and say, we want that as well. Well, they're, they're going to have to. And so um, what would a post-capitalist economy look like? Um, and, and can you give us a, a little bit about the kind of policies that would exist in that? And also, um, I'd like you to think about the impact of climate change. What will a new economic paradigm look like? Well, in my book, Post-Capitalism, uh, climate change is built in. You know, we, we have to, it's the imperative. Uh, we, we have to, you know, achieve that. And I, I would... One of the reasons I am so uh, positive about transitional measures that move us beyond the market is that I do not think a market-based economy is going to deliver uh, zero net carbon by 2025. Now, in the book Post-Capitalism, I emphasized the small-scale, granular kinds of economic reform and change that could produce islands of non-capitalism within the system we have. That, that for me, so I'm not a Bolshevik, I don't think take the state... Um, top-down reform, nationalise everything. That's not, for me, the transition. The transition for me is create within the, the economy the co-ops, the, uh, the, the, the B Corps, uh, quite, you know, uh, quite minor but quite amazing things where, you, where people remove the profit motive out of human life and also remove carbon at the same time. Now, since writing that book in 2015, what the big problem or the big difference is the 2018 IPCC report, which compressed the timescale. I now think that we are going to have, in order, that a post-capitalist transition is going to have to have greater state direction, and it's more urgent. And it's even more urgent because we're actually facing um, the problem of what we've been talking about, rising far right, dysfunctional economies, and actually war on the doorstep of Europe. So. I know think what so you, what would it look like? Let's think about Scotland. Okay, at the last um, in the referendum, there was quite a nice series of sort of you know what ifs produced. I think it was by um, Commonweal uh, or, or Commonweal and some of their other other uh, facilitators, um, and it included things like you know sort of a, an underground railway to the Orkneys um, or to Shetland. I can't remember which one. It was a bloody long runaway un underground railway. Um, Okay, or the railways to the islands in general, or, or tunnels. Okay, for me, it's about the, the, what we're trying to do is to de-link work from wages. That's the fundamental we're trying, thing we're trying to do. To say, in, the, in in a high tech economy, there's not going to be enough high skilled, high wage jo jobs to keep the economy and people's lives um, as they've been, and they're, and they're not very good already. So if you de-link work from wages, you, what, how do you do that? Well, universal basic income and universal basic services. So those two are the blocks. I don't care which is which because they actually have the same – I don't care which they use because they have the same impact. 
macroeconomically. A lot of people say universal basic services gives you better bang for the buck. So you're going to have to have a high tax, um, high tax economy. Um, that's doable. The post-war British economy, you know, the tax rate on the top 6,000 people was 95%. Uh, and Labour at its annual conference made this huge, Stafford Cripps, the Chancellor, made a huge speech saying, we've achieved a position where only 6,000 people can live in luxury. Well, you know, if you, if you do, what do I mean by universal basic services? Free local transport, capped per mile long distance transport. So free local transport in Glasgow, in Edinburgh, in, in Dundee, in Aberdeen, free local public transport. Next, free nursery services for all children. Next, free university education, grants and fees, free. Next, rent caps and mortgage caps subsidized by the state and energy price caps. Now, if you do that, see the difference between giving, say, uh, an Uber driver a 15% pay rise and doing that is that you make it possible for that Uber driver to go, okay, well, on the days I don't work, I'm going to train to be something else. And you allow that person to survive the transition of the economy. Um, I do think we're going to need to get there by quite a bit of state direction. So for the Scottish government, I mean, you've already got the, the Scottish Investment Bank, um, small scale, but it's the beginnings. And I think you know, when you get a Scottish, uh, you know, kind of, uh, I, I, I want to see in the white paper something much more directive and more, much more ambitious about this transition. Because the idea of go independent, but uh, but sort of impose austerity because people, you know, will accept that for, for the long term price. I, I just, I'm not sure they will. And it, if you really want independence, you want a, a bold vision towards a different kind of economy, not same kind of economies we've already got, um, administered a little bit more, less cruelly, and with a different elite. Because I do think we need a much more radical um, position for the, the Scottish economy. Um, I think really important what you're saying about co-ops. I think, you know, that is the way to go. I think, you know, uh, with the uh, public sector uh gaining so much control during the winter of discontent that ushered in uh, and helped neoliberalism survive for so long. I think people need to see a different model. And I think encouraging more cooperative working uh, is, is really an important thing. And, you know, to be fair to the Scottish government, they've been very busy with that as well. The other thing I'd say about the uh, Commonwealth vision, um, I've actually just read in The National a couple of days ago that Angus Brenda McNeil, who is an MP for the uh, islands, he has organised funding from the Saudis. I think it's going to be from a pension fund to get tunnels um, between the islands. Because, as I said, Scotland's not a currency issue. We couldn't create the currency to do it. We have to find it from someone else. So that's, unfortunately, that's a position where we don't have those, those fiscal choices that the UK government do have, but they wouldn't invest in that. So we've got to find investment from outside, unfortunately. Paul Mason, thanks so much for joining us on Scotonomics. It's been fast, fascinating um, having your view. And by my book, um, How to Stop Fascism. <laughs> don't worry we'll make sure we've got a link in the comments as well i'll add that to my, I'll add it to my it'll sit next to this one